Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, and today it's all about socialism. 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 Socialist. 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 So this is where you scream, but he's a socialist! Now, the reason the term socialism has become a ubiquitous presence in our current political discourse is because of this guy. What democratic socialism is about is saying that it is immoral and wrong that the top one tenth of one percent in this country own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. And on Wednesday at George Washington University, Senator and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders laid out his vision of democratic socialism. Democratic socialism means to me requiring and achieving political and economic freedom in every community in this country. And let me be very, very clear as well. When I state that the only way we achieve these goals is through a political revolution. The speech also came at a time when his campaign seems to have stalled. He trails Vice President Joe Biden in national and early state polls. Meanwhile, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg are eating into his support among liberal voters. The speech was an opportunity for Sanders to reset the terms of the debate, and he hopes his position in the race. I sat down with the senator in a conference room at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee near Capitol Hill, not long after he finished his speech. So tell me how long this is going to be. Probably about 15 minutes. Do you have time for that? That work? Okay. He was ready to get down to business, so I dove in. Let's talk about socialism for a second. So for some of us who in school learned about socialism, it was the means of production that the government controls or... It was, this is Western Europe and it's capitalism, but government's more engaged. Where does democratic socialism fit into these assumptions of socialism? I think, for me at least, it falls much into the latter, and that there's a lot to be learned from countries in Scandinavia and Western Europe uh, that guarantee health care to all people as a right, uh, that do much better with the children and the senior citizens in their countries that we do. Uh, in some cases in Germany, for example, make sure that workers are represented on the board of directors of large uh, corporations. So nobody here that I know of uh, is talking about a massive takeover of the means of production. Might have made some sense 150 years ago, but that's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is an economy and a government that works for all people, and not just the 1%. And the point that I made Uh, this afternoon in my remarks was to say that way back in 1944, in in a speech that didn't get a whole lot of attention because it was the middle of World War II, the end of World War II, and Roosevelt died a year later, what he said was something pretty profound. What FDR said is that we have a constitution and a bill of rights that guarantee us political freedom, all right? You can say anything you want. You're on radio, you can do whatever you want, and that's guaranteed and defended. You can practice any religion that you want. You can go out and protest, etc., etc. And that is terribly important. 
But what he said back then is that we need to go further. It's not just guaranteeing political rights of freedom. It is economic rights as well. Are you really free if you're working for $9 an hour now and have to work 70 or 80 hours a week to take care of your family? Are you free if when you get sick you cannot afford to go to the doctor? Or if you're 90 years of age and you can't afford your prescription drugs, if you're spending 50% of your limited income on housing. And what he said back then is that we have got to ensure that economic rights, economic rights are human rights. And that's kind of where I come from. Well, and that's another thing you talked about in your speech today was FDR, when he made speeches like this, when he was implementing the New Deal, was called a socialist or a communist. LBJ when you create society and Medicare, socialist, communist. Neither of those men were taking on that. They did not call themselves a socialist the way that you do. Well, let me go to your first point, and it's important that everybody know this, as I'm sure many do. Every program, and Harry Truman uh, made this, and, and I, I quoted Truman today. I hadn't until recently seen that quote. He said, basically, every time government tries to do something for working families, it is called socialist. Uh, and, you know, as you indicate, when uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson passed Medicare, you had the AMA, AMA and all these right-wing guys say, oh, this is socialism. It's Obamacare is socialism. Obamacare is socialism. <laughs> the the, the uh, stimulus package of Obama was socialistic. So all that I'm saying here today is that it would be a major step forward for the wealthiest country in the history of the world in the year 2019 to recognize that the right to health care is a human right, that the right for a decent paying jobs, when half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck, the right to a decent paying job is a human right. The right for an education. I mean, right now, think about it. You have families that can't afford childcare. You have public school systems that are underfunded. Uh, you have people who cannot afford to go to college or are leaving college fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 in debt. We have got to state that. Put it right there. The education you need to advance in society is a human right. Retirement security. You shouldn't have to wait for meals on wheels in order to get the nutrition that you need. You know, when you're old, you should be able to retire with dignity. Clean environment so your kids don't get asthma or you can turn on the faucet and drink clean water. These are not radical ideas, and this is what I believe in. This is what, to me, democratic socialism means. And there are a number of Democrats. There's one who's going to come out with his own speech tomorrow, John Hickenlooper, pushing back on socialism and this term, basically saying, we believe in all of these things, but why embrace a term that is so loaded? Maybe you can call this something else, well, democratic see. equality, or some <laughs> other term that doesn't, isn't so freighted. Yeah, well, you know, I understand that question. And here's the answer. And it has everything to do with why we call, you know, the message of our campaign is us, not me. Because here is the point. You have heard and I have heard and listeners have heard year after year people saying, hey, we need health care for everybody. We need education. All of these things. You're right. These are not radical ideas. How come we don't have them? How come we don't have them? Because many of the people who espouse these ideas, who mean these ideas, really at the end of the day are not prepared to deal with the very powerful special interests who do not want these ideas. All right, for example, vast majority of your listeners understand, unlike President Trump, 
that climate change is real. It is causing devastating problems right now. And if we don't get our act together, there will be irreparable damage. God knows what will happen to this planet. People understand that. But unless we are prepared to take on the fossil fuel industry, not be nice to them, not go some middle ground with them, not work out some kind of compromise, you got to take them on. Because the only way we save this planet, in my view, is transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. Another point, all right? You're quite right. A lot of the Democratic candidates are getting, you know, healthcare is right. Bernie is right. We need to have healthcare for all. How many of them are prepared to take on the incredible power of the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry? Industries, by the way, which have endless amounts of money and will spend probably hundreds of millions of dollars attacking me personally. So my, here's my point. It's not just what we are for. It's to understand what Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, reminded us. Real progress never takes place without struggle, without struggle. And what I believe and what this campaign is about is bringing millions of people together to stand up and say, you know what, Wall Street, you know what insurance companies and drug companies and military, industrial, complex and fossil fuel industry, your greed is destroying what this country is about. We are going to take you on. So what is the difference between taking them on and government control of those industries. So tell me how you do that. So if, you, if you're saying, I'm not advocating that the government take over the energy sector or the banking sector, but how do you uh, then have a role for capitalism and these good. industries to play? Good question. All right. In terms of the fossil fuel industry, I mean, I think we have to simply put it on the table and say, we have got to zero out carbon emissions. The days of the fossil fuel industry are over. We've got to move to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. That's it. Uh, in terms of health care, it's not a government. I know Trump will tell us every day that it's a government takeover of the health care system. Uh, not true. I live 50 miles away from the Canadian border in Burlington, Vermont. Up in Canada, basically, most doctors, as it happens, for better or worse, unlike the UK, I should tell you, are you know, private practices. Uh, but you have one insurance company. One insurance company, that's the government insurance company. And what I believe is right now, you got a Medicare program, which is a good program for seniors, not as good as it should be. It's good. And we have to expand it. So people, doctors will still practice the way they will practice. The only change that people will see is that uh, the nature of their card will be different and it will say Medicare for everybody rather than United or Blue Cross Blue Shield. And that if you wanted to, like in Canada, if I wanted to supplement that and say, I would like to get hip surgery and I need a specialist nope. that I hip pay for, how would that work? No, hip surgery is part of comprehensive health care. If you wanted cosmetic surgery, you didn't like the shape of your nose, all right? <laughs> uh, you know, you want to do stuff like that. But what our legislation does is, is basically cover all of the fundamental health care needs uh, that people have. And by the way, uh, despite Trump's assertions, we expand Medicare for older people. Uh, right now, as you may know, Medicare uh, for seniors does not cover dental care. Uh, it doesn't cover uh, hearing aids or eyeglasses, and we expand that as well. Why do this speech now? Well, it's a speech we planned for several months, and I, and I think this is why. You know, I really gave a lot of thought. My wife and I gave a lot of thought as to whether or not I should run. This is not an easy business, as you know. And we concluded that I should run uh, for two reasons. Number one, we concluded, and I believe is the case today, and I think polling reflects this, that I am 
I believe, the strongest candidate to ultimately defeat Donald Trump. In the last couple of days, we've seen polls come out that had us, I think, 10 points ahead of Trump. And I think we can beat them in the key battleground states. Uh, you're going to have Democrats that are going to have to win in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. I think uh, we have the agenda uh, that can win in, in those states. But here's the second point that I decided to run, is that it is not just winning an election. Uh, I am very proud to be Vermont senator, and I enjoy that very much. But I believe for a long list of reasons that we have got to transform our economy to make it work for working people, because if we don't, there could be even worse than Trump to come in years in, years in the future. So what I'm running is not just to win this election, not just to be a nice guy. I am running to help build a movement of millions of people which is prepared to take on powerful special interests and, in fact, transform this economy. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. There is no excuse for not having health care for all, for our young people not having the best educational opportunities in the world, for all people having affordable housing, etc., etc. And that's why I'm running, not just the, because it would be cool to be president. It would be cool to be president. I admit that. But I am running because I think it's imperative that we transform our society. Well, I want to get to that question that you said about it sort of goes beyond you and whether you're elected president or when you are no longer here, where does this movement go? Where, what, we obviously have seen some movement in terms of other, person, uh, other people taking on this mantle, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez most notably, but it is not in a huge army in Congress yet. Is that something that you assume is going to happen? Yeah, I do. And how, does that, how is that going to work? Here's how it happens. You know, look, this is the simple reality, and not too many people will tell you this. By and large, you have a Congress now that is elected to a significant degree by wealthy individuals who have their own agenda. I mean, if you go out on the street to any community in America and you ask people uh, whether they believe it makes sense to give tax breaks to billionaires and cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, they will tell you you're crazy. My guess is 90 95% of the people tell you you're nuts. That is the agenda of the dominant party in the United States Senate right now, the Republican Party. How does that happen? Because you got a political system which is fundamentally corrupt, which allows billionaires to buy elections and which has thousands of lobbyists crawling all over Capitol Hill right now. And what this campaign is finally about is putting an end to that undemocratic process. It ain't easy. I'm not here to tell you that I could snap my fingers and make it happen. But of all the things that have happened in this campaign so far, the one that makes me happiest is that we have well over a million people who have volunteered to roll up their sleeves and get involved in this campaign. And if I win the presidency... Those people are not going to go away. We're going to mobilize those people and a lot more, A, to elect progressives to the United States Congress. And I think Alexandria is doing a great job, by the way, to get young people involved in the political process and ultimately to push and pass an agenda that speaks for the needs of all, not just the 1%. And even if that means challenging incumbent Democrats. Absolutely. Absolutely. Would you endorse someone right now running for Congress if they were— Challenging an incumbent Democrat? Yes, absolutely. Without the slightest hesitancy. Is your expectation that come 
2020-2022, there are going to be a lot more Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes running for Congress. Are they coming think, to you and talking you know, to you I, about I, it? Alexandria is a particular political gem. She is brilliant and, and very much you know, somebody who knows how to use social media in an incredibly effective way. You know, what we tried to do in 2016, I think with some success, is we said to the young people of this country, you are the future of America, and you can't sit back and continue to have, you know, a very, very low voter turnout rate. you got to get involved. And, you know, in 2018, we had the highest rate of voter turnout rate of young people in modern history. It wasn't enough, but it was a lot. And that influenced the election and the composition of the U.S. House. we got to build on that. And I think the path toward victory is to greatly expand the number of young people who are participating in the political process who are prepared to run for office. I cannot tell you how in every state that I go to, somebody comes up to me and said, Bernie, you know what? You got me involved. I'm now on the school board. I'm now a representative in the legislature. That is what so we So it's a pipeline. It doesn't Absolutely. matter whether they're in Congress or not. You're, it, it, oh, it's it's God, that no. they're in the pipeline. Absolutely. To you. And you see, you saw it, you know, you're seeing people... <laughs> One of the great remarks made me very happy in Virginia, you remember, a couple of years ago. Uh, the head of the Republican Party is somebody, he said something, he says, we were losing elections to the legislature from people we had never even heard of. You know, new people who for the first time had got involved, knocked on every door in the community, and they won. And we're seeing this all over the country. I want to talk about the campaign for a minute. I was reading, there was a good time interview that just came out the other day, your campaign manager was quoted saying, a movement that wins is a movement that grows. So let's talk about your movement and your campaign. What can you point to in your campaign in 2019 that has grown from 2016? The number of uh, volunteers that we have, which is maybe the most uh, important. As I said, we have well over a million uh, volunteers in states like Iowa and New Hampshire, we have many, many thousands of volunteers, and that is something that absolutely was not the case last time around. And the, the coalition of people that are supporting you, that are donating to you, that you think are going to vote for you, does that? how different does that look from 2016? I think we're building. I mean, I think many of the, um, you know, when I got into this race, we raised a reasonable amount of money. And it turned out that a, I don't remember the exact number, but a significant percentage of that was from new contributors. So I think there are a lot of new people out there uh, who are getting involved in the campaign in a way that was not the case before. Let's talk a little bit about your expectations for what you think these debates are going to look like between the Democrats and how feisty you think it might get. Well, I have no idea. You know, I was involved in a number of debates with Secretary Clinton, and that was one-on-one. Now you're going to have, what, 10 people up there, so and everyone will have about 14 seconds to explain the history of the world and all that they want to do. But, you know, I think people will see the different views of the candidates, and I think it's a good process. But they have 14 seconds to say socialism isn't the right way to go, or Joe Biden is not the right candidate for this time, or whatever the attack may be. Well, I mean, that's, but, I mean, that's the problem you're going to have when you have so many candidates in a limited amount of time. And, and let me say this, as I've said many, many times, uh, I know a lot of these candidates personally, and many of them are, are friends of mine, and they are good people. And you're not going to hear me disparage them. And I think the job of uh, the citizenry of this country is to listen carefully and get to know the records of the people, get to know what they stand for, and decide who they want to vote for. Thinking about the Midwest, you talked about winning back voters, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. A lot of those are Obama voters that voted for Trump last time. A lot of them are older. 
And I keep coming back to this term about socialism, but this is where it seems the Trump campaign is hoping that they can use that term for an older generation that for them, the term has very negative connotations. Well, I think you're right. I think that is what his plan is. But I should also tell you that the concept of democratic socialism is increasingly positive among younger people in this country who, for a variety of reasons, are the most progressive and idealistic generation, probably in the history of this country, to tell you the truth. And also, economically, are not doing particularly well. Everything being equal, they will probably have a lower standard of living than their parents. So for them, the concept of democratic socialism, which is not uh, connected to Uh, Soviet Union authoritarianism, dictatorships and so forth is somewhat different. But your point is well taken with regard to seniors. And we have got to reach out to seniors and to explain to them, you know what? You enjoy Social Security, don't you? Oh, yeah, we love Social Security. It's very important to our lives. Did you know that when Social Security was created, it was called socialistic? Did you know that Medicare was called socialistic? Do you know that the Veterans Administration has been attacked and attacked and attacked for being socialistic? And we have to simply explain... Uh, to the seniors of this country, what we mean by democratic socialism and how our ideas will, in fact, improve their lives and provide them with more security uh, than they have today. Senator Sanders, thank you very much. Thank you very much.